You are listening to Filthy Armenian Adventures with your host, Alec Mohibian. Just yesterday, you were flying high. The wind at your back. You were going record speed. You had witnessed a miracle, one that you had first imagined, one that you fought for. A miracle of history. You had seen a very old mountain move. You finally had a story people could understand. A brand new, very old story nobody had heard and no nation remembers to teach. A three-act structure, an elevator pitch for your soul. You were comprehended now by people. This public, which could no longer comprehend each other or their own selves. People could feel you, see your tail loud and clear. You could turn your face to the crowd. For a second, you stopped being weird, stopped seeming random, Some people even said you were inspiring. You got ovations, nominations, invitations. You won 13 awards. All of it sincere. All from juries of your peers. Experts called you a contender. You had a secret people wanted to know. The era of losing causes, hopeless battles, dark rage, creative drought, ghetto scrambling and gambling. All in the past. You beat the odds. Knew they could be beat knew that every long shot was inevitable. The blues was on snooze. There was a crack in history, and the crack was just your size because you had drawn it yourself. You could slip right through it now and enter a new dimension with a whole new set of patterns vibrating at a level beyond the old ones with a techno kind of rhythm that promised joy to explore. Old burdens appeared now as animations to be edited and lifted at will. You thought maybe for a moment the past was past. You even moved to Hollywood. To be free. To be closer to the action. Closer, in fact, to the world. It seemed like perfect timing until... Plot twist! My fellow Americans, 
Tonight, I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. It still makes no fucking sense. There was no cause and effect. Not a single lesson to learn. If you didn't believe in something called history, you wouldn't have even thought that the thing had any basis in human experience. Wars are common. Plagues? Not so much. Anyway, nothing caused this one that 99.99% of the people it harmed could really control. They didn't teach this sort of thing in drama class. In screenplay class, if you submitted this bit of reality on a piece of paper, it would get you an F. Though the Greeks would be less surprised by a weird spring, a mutating virus, a second Black History Month, a world upside down. But the audience is no longer Greek. And the audience demands answers. The audience always demands answers. As Somerset Mom said about writing plays, the audience are determinists to a man. If you don't give them answers, they will invent answers for themselves. Custom, boutique chains of cause and effect for a single world event will be spun entirely out of their most consumed pundit's fancy. It'll run to the very top, not stopping at the global elites, but the alien demon beings that control the global elites, and the bankers who control the alien demon beings. No vacation for anyone. This is war. This is mayhem. This is the sound of democracy saving itself. Wouldn't the Greeks be proud? This is needles, witchcraft, riots. This is zombies. This is news from hell, and it's on every street corner. Don't ask. That would be disinformation. Asking is for domestic terrorists. The world will enter an epoch of answers, and a blizzard of retarded answers will turn the world upside down. Thank God you're in Hollywood, where stars have always paved the ground. And an old voice always tells you to look beneath your feet. I'm walking through streets that are dead. Walking, walking with you in my head. My feet are so tired, my brain is so wild And the clouds are weeping You did not trust that voice when it first met your ear. It was a whiny voice, a hippie voice, sounded like a pointing finger. A cawing, derisive voice is what Philip Larkin called it in a positive review. The voice of the 60s. You did not trust the 60s, and you did not trust protest as a genre. Even if that was kind of your whole thing. You were a red-pilled young man, based in red-pilled, as they say, even if you hated the Matrix. What red-pilled you was the discovery 
that all forms of protest taught in school were state-approved. For your homework today, protest. Phony, phony propaganda. If this textbook shit was protest, what were the real protests? Were they perhaps depicted in textbooks as something else? As villainy? Were they edited out completely? Did somebody say, the voice of his generation? But how could the voice of a generation be a voice of protest? And then you heard the voice. It was coming from a little radio on the bicycle of a burnt-out hippie in Isla Vista. Something about something blowing in the wind. Or maybe it was a hurricane. Luckily, in college, you drove a car. Not a fast car, exactly, but you drove it fast. Almost got arrested for going 99 on the 101 in the middle of the night. Had a warrant out for your arrest, same time as Michael Jackson. Cars need fuel. One Friday, sophomore year, you were sitting at the mobile gas station in Golita. The radio was on K-Tide 99.9, the station that played Black Magic Woman and Hotel California, uh, but also every once in a while, a, th a third, different song. John is in a basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement, thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, batch out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway, looking for a new friend. A man in a coonskin cap and a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10. On the page at first glance, Subterranean Homesick Blues appears to be as finger-pointy as it gets, a beatnik anthem of youth revolt against the rat race. But what you hear is something different. What you hear is a protest of the spirit, a protest about protest, a protest of protest itself. Here was a protest that stays protest. Quote, The madly complicated world was something I took little interest in wrote the protester. It had no relevancy, no weight. I wasn't seduced by it. What was swinging, topical, and up-to-date was stuff like the Titanic sinking, the Galveston flood, John Henry driving steel, John Hardy shooting a man, and the West Virginia line. All this was current, played out in the open. This was the news that I considered, followed, and kept tabs on." End quote. Oh, get born, keep on short pants, romance. Learn to dance, get dressed, get blessed. Try to be a success. Please her, please him. Buy gifts, don't steal, don't lift. Twenty years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. Look out, kid, they keep it all hid. Better jump down a manhole, light yourself a candle. Don't wear sandals, try to forge your scandals. Don't wanna be a bum, you better chew gum. The pump don't work, cause the vandals took the handle. Back then, you hadn't jumped down any manholes. You certainly never avoided scandals. In fact, just a few months later, the almighty women's center of UC Santa Barbara would try to drive you out of town for laughing at feminists in the campus newspaper. You were already homesick. You already had blues. But now the pussy pitchforks were chasing you back to subterranean L.A. Just where you like it. 
The song ended as suddenly as it began, and your tank was full. Good thing the pumps were working back then. All your pretty classmates wore sandals, but they were too busy fucking to fuck with any handles. That's not the case anymore. And you're not the same boy anymore. You're twice the age now. Or maybe half the age. You've listened to that subterranean homesick voice inside out for half of your life. You bought all the albums, the bootlegs, the basement tapes. You picked your favorites from the catalog, bringing it all back home. Highway 61 revisited. You found eternal beauty in Mr. Tambourine Man, acerbic firepower and ballad of a thin man, high-octane fuel in Highway 61 and Tombstone Blues, comedy on the spectacular Preston Sturgis scale in Desolation Row, spellbinding poetic enigma in It's All Right, Ma, deathless dance in Lonesome Day Blues. You found a soundtrack for your distant cloudy heart, in Highlands. You found out about the Christian conversion much to your delight. Not so much for the music it produced, as for the story, the surprise, the twist, and of course, the singing. You knew that this was your kind of voice after all. Kind, derisive, playful, stark raving, lucid. And of course, like all the other voices you cared about, old. There would be limits to how much you could share this voice with anyone your age. There would be limits to how much it would bring you closer to the rivers of daily life, as a millennial. All the usual limits that come from being born too late and not yet knowing how to act like you were born too early. But then something shocking happened. A few months after you turned 21, Bob Dylan at the age of 65, appeared as a silhouette in an iPod commercial playing an old familiar blues song with strange new lyrics to match the old refrain. I don't care what you do, I don't care what you say, I don't care where you go or how long you stay. Someday, baby, you ain't gonna work. That summer of 2006, on the eve of my final year of college, for the first time in my life, someone I cared about dropped an album of original music that felt like it was all about me, my world, and my so-called generation. The album's title, Modern Times. sealed the deal between me and Bob. The voice I had misprejudged I was now literally dancing to as though it were the voice of my own twisted fate. 
But all pacts and covenants of that kind eventually make their way to storage. You don't read them over every morning. And after two more original albums, Together Through Life and Tempest, both of which I love, by the way, both of which I played the shit out of, Bob Dylan took another strange detour recording a whole bunch of so-called Sinatra songs, and he was taking them seriously, and nobody knew what to make of it or what he was up to. Just like they never knew what he was really up to in the extremely volatile live performances of his late-stage, never-ending tour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the poet laureate of rock and roll, the voice of the promise of the 60s counterculture, the guy who forced folk into bed with a rock. Who donned to make up in the 70s and disappeared in a haze of substance abuse. Who emerged to find Jesus. Who was written off as a has-been by the end of the 80s and who suddenly shifted gears. Releasing some of the strongest music of his career beginning in the late 90s. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. But anyway, he went on the last episode of Letterman and sang The Night We Called It A Day. After Norm MacDonald's set about Germany declaring war on the world. Life started picking up all kinds of speed, for me, and while Dylan was busy revisiting the Sinatra period, I ventured into other musical tents, figured I had to get up to speed with modern times, broaden some horizons, narrow others, find my footing in the cultural rat race, become relatable, or at least comprehensible, more vulnerable, bubble to the present. You go your way and I'll go mine. And then 2020 happened. And 18th Street Coffee House, where I typed away my 20s and stored my Delco Atlantic diner mug for private use, and where Larry David met a chick in an episode of Curb without realizing she was in a wheelchair, 18th Street Coffee House closed forever. But its owner had not stopped cooking. He had a new record on the fire. And while the world was shutting down, he dropped the final course first on March 27, 2020. He dropped the first course on April 17, and then he dropped the whole new album on June 19. Rough and rowdy ways, just what the doctors ordered. And for many, many, many months... There was nothing else for me to do but walk around the famous boulevard of crime, dodging the bums and the gums, keeping my handles away from the vandals, getting screamed at by cloud-shaped banshees for not wearing a mask, and drinking up the mysterious prophecies, the histories, the murders and triumphs, the ballads and blue signals in rough and rowdy ways. Until one day, Bob showed up to meet me, from the stage of the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, where he was scheduled to put on a show and bring the songs to life and reveal exactly who he is and what he's been up to this entire fucking time. Today and tomorrow Yesterday too The flowers are dying Like all things do Follow me close I'm going to Berlin Ali I'll lose my mind If you don't come with me 
I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, I contain multitudes, he announces on stage at the Pantages and in the first song of Rough and Rowdy Ways. Many people say it's hard to make out the lyrics in Bob's live performances, but there is no tongue-in-cheek this time. The lyrics are crystal clear. I can start an album at the age of 80 on the most cliché line in American poetry. Yes, I can. Are we not on the most cliché-friendly street in America right now? Yes, I'm just like Anne Frank. Where's her Hollywood star? Would it be too awkward if she had one alongside Indiana Jones and the Rolling Stones? What, you think I don't sing songs of experience just like William Blake? Bitch, you better believe I got a telltale heart like Mr. Poe, and don't think you're so special. I also rollick and frolic with all the young dudes, so don't think you got one on me, and please, don't step on David Bowie. Yesterday, too, the flowers are dying like all things do. Follow me close, I'm going to Bali Nali. I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. That's how the song begins. I'm going to hear that word as Burly Nali, the big film festival where I've had some real memories, and also where just before the plague, in February 2020, a film of mine was invited for a big fancy peace award where I met Vanessa Redgrave. Don't step on her. Um, I just throw in one little thing because I'm not going to live so very long, although I want to live longer. <laughs> but I'm not going to live so very long. I don't think it's right. If someone has been rewarded with an award or a prize for having some, done something with some people or a lot of people or a jury or a board or a committee have said, you're worth a prize. If they do wrong later, I don't think it's right to say, oh, they can't have a prize. It's crazy. Life isn't like that. If someone did something good, 
they did that one good thing, or a few other good things. If later they did bad, they did bad for that. And they should pay for the bad they did. But you don't take away from them the good they did. It's crazy. It's in Vanessa Redgrave, rebel against Me Too. Could she be the lass in the lass from Balinali? An old poem of the town from the Irish Midlands that might be the real source of Bob's reference in that verse. Nah, it can't be her. She's English as they come. Or is she? She was practically born on the stage. Her birth, her birth was announced to the audience at the Old Vic Theatre by Laurence Olivier. Vanessa's father, Sir Michael Redgrave, was playing in that night's production of Hamlet, and when announcing that his Laertes just had a daughter, Olivier reportedly said, A great actress has been born this night. Denmark, England. Balinali, Berlinali, what's the difference? Bob says he came up with the final stanzas of the song first, inspiring the rest to form on their own time. for Balinali. It's back to Hollywood now. Then maybe later we can retake Berlin. History, baby. You can change it, and you can make it, and you can write it, and you can name it. But the one thing nobody has ever been able to do is escape it. that don't end, another ship going out, another day of anger, bitterness, and doubt. I know how it happened. I saw it begin. I opened my heart to the world, and the world came in. Hello, Mary Lou. Hello, Miss Pearl. My fleet. Friend. 
barefooted guides from the underworld. No stars in the sky shine brighter than you. You girls mean business. And I do too. Well, I'm the enemy of treason, enemy of strife, enemy of the unlived, meaningless life. I ain't no false prophet, I just know what I know. I go where only the I ain't no false prophet. Second song on the album, but far from second string. A ghostly blues in the bobonic manner, where it doesn't sound like any blues song you ever heard before. Blues songs usually always sound like other blues songs. That's part of their charm. But Bob tends to twist his in innovative ways, even apart from inventing his own lyrics. This one sort of starts out as a march, prump, before it gets to the blues trot, and then the, the, the guitar riffs mi mixed into it, Odyssey vibes. I can't speak on technicalities of music, as you know, but to my primitive mind, the song has three different rhythms, something three. In the live show, it's taken to a spooky max, and so it sounds much livelier than it does on the record. Here in the Pantages, it sounds like a dozen skeletons are rattling the keys of Bob's piano between each verse, and sometimes even amid. Skeletons like the one on the cover of Rough and Rowdy Ways, and perhaps like the ones in I Contain Multitudes, where the singer has a telltale heart like Mr. Poe, and skeletons in the closets of people you know. Who is this ain't no false prophet? Where did he come from? And what is he doing on Hollywood Boulevard today? Always something three. Let's check on some facts, however imaginary they may be. Chronicles Volume 1. That's where Bob chronicles his earliest days as a magician. <laughs> Did I say magician? I mean musician, obviously. I literally wrote down magician by accident. He was born in Duluth and grew up in Hibbing, Minnesota. Not the most enchanting kingdom, perhaps. But genius grows in weeds, not in genius factories. And besides, this particular plot of weeds had the fanciest, most opulently funded public school in the history of America, Hibbing High. Built by cunning local political wizardry from the wealth of the mines. Read about it sometime. Hell of a place to go to school. But for all the opulent facilities and swimming pools, no asset compares in value to a single brilliant English teacher a true priest of poetry, and Hibbing High had one, Boniface B.J. Rolfson. Bob was lucky enough to be taught by that man in 10th grade, and he never forgot it. We don't know for sure when young Bob changed his mind from wanting to become a war hero military general to wanting to become a singer, but we do know from personal experience that 10th grade is a time when such audibles are made. One true literary mentor is worth a thousand degrees. Know this from experience, too. And as we'll see, even if Bob already wanted to be a singer before he took Rolfson's class, he would need Rolfson's teachings in order to achieve the second thing he wanted to be, 
which was a star. Because he did want to be a star. Every performer in the world wants to be a star. Many of them deny it. People in the public arena often like to pretend that they were just minding their own little business, little old me, having a quiet little life until a mob surrounded their house and demanded that they croon or do stand-up or write saucy little journalisms or run for Congress. Not Bob. Bob minded everyone's business. And he wanted to be a star, just like little Richard or Buddy Holly. But while Hibbing might have been the perfect place for genius to arise, it was not a perfect place to make a star. To be a singer, you needed a band. To keep a good band, you gotta pay them. To pay them, you need good gigs. And to get those gigs in Hibbing, to get the good weddings and banquets and ice cream parlor openings, you needed to know somebody. Electric or acoustic, you needed to be plugged in. You needed to have connections. Bob did not have any connections. Bob kept losing his bands to other singers, not because they had more talent, but because they had connections. This kept happening over and over, and it was not fun. In fact, it was getting to be a bit crushing. To be so talented, so ambitious, but to have no chance to even show it off due merely to the facts of life, the injustice of the world. He would moan to his grandmother, his one true confidant. She'd tell him, you can't please everyone. The kind of wisdom that seems helpless at first, but grows on you like an investment. Quote, There was a lot of halting and waiting, little acknowledgement, little affirmation. But sometimes all it takes is a wink and a nod from some unexpected place to vary the tedium of a baffling existence. End quote. And guess where that wink and nod came from? Here he is coming now directly to ringside, the one and only... The original, the toast of the coast, the human orchid, gorgeous George, now entering the ring, coming up the steps into the ring now. Once a year or so, gorgeous George would bring his whole troop of performers to town. Goliath, the vampire, the twister, the strangler, the bone crusher, the holy terror, midget wrestlers, a couple of lady wrestlers, and a whole lot more. I was playing on a makeshift platform in the lobby of the building with the usual wild activity of people milling about and no one was paying much attention. Suddenly, the doors burst open and in came gorgeous George himself. He roared in like the storm, didn't go through the backstage area, he came right through the lobby of the building and he seemed like 40 men. It was gorgeous George in all his magnificent glory with all the lightning and vitality you'd expect. He had valets and was surrounded by women carrying roses, wore a majestic fur-lined gold cape and his long blonde curls were flowing. He brushed by the makeshift stage and glanced towards the sound of the music. He didn't break stride, but he looked at me, eyes flashing with moonshine. He winked and seemed to mouth the phrase, You're making it come alive. And his valet, Woodrow, is coming up, following him up the stairs. His second, Irving Laufer, is holding the ropes apart. And the gorgeous one steps into the ring. Whether he really said it or not, it didn't matter. It's what I thought I heard him say that mattered, and I never forgot it. It was all the recognition and encouragement I would need for years to come. Sometimes it's all it takes. The kind of recognition that comes when you're doing the thing for the thing's sake, and you're onto something. It's just that nobody recognizes it yet. 
Gorgeous George, a mighty spirit. That's the Hellenic look that Gorgeous George is wearing by Frank and Joseph of Hollywood. And they say it was dull to grow up in the 1950s. They being probably the same people who think it matters whether Gorgeous George really did say those words to Bob, or whether his presence alone made them heard. There's the bell and we're ready for action. Pads, once crossed, can never be uncrossed, babe. Bob would lose his band he was playing with that night, lose him like all the rest. But while it may be damn near impossible for a singer to sing without a band, it's not actually impossible. Lack of connections, with a little help from the never-backstage gorgeous George, forced Bob to realize that if he wanted to be a star, he'd have to learn to be his own band. And if you want to be your own band, you better learn a thing or two about folk music. Fate is shaped by two hands, not one. And if you want to play folk songs, you better be capable of following them exactly where they lead. Even if they lead to a thousand different places, from one moment to the next, from one performance to another, depending on who you are that day and who might be listening. In other words, if you want to be a one-man band, you can't do it yourself. Maybe you need to summon the dead. They can't speak for themselves. But if you learn their stories, you can speak for them. And when you do that honestly... When you make their hearts yours, their spirits and their bones have a way of backing you up. Even if your style is too erratic to find a place on the radio. The radio wants light entertainment, but your defendants, the dead, your accompaniment, your band of misfit spirits are too wild for that. Folk songs became Bob's, quote, perceptor and guide into some altered consciousness of reality, some different republic, some liberated republic. Griel Marcus, the music historian, would some 30 years later call it the invisible republic, end quote. With the army of that invisible republic behind him, Robert Zimmerman became Bob Dylan. Many rock stars get famous with a band and then go solo. Bob started solo and then broke off violently with himself, famously outraging the entire folk world who took him for their Messiah, their Moses in revolt of corporate Pharaoh, their one true connection. When he went electric in 1966 with a brand new band, and not just any band, the band. It was a classic rock and roll arc in reverse. You could say Bob Dylan was the first rollin' rock star. But let's not put the horse before the cart. Before he became a star, Dylan had to make his invisible republic manifest, had to fuse it with the republic in which he stood. Singing old folk songs, however brilliantly, could only get him so far. It got him noticed by the great producer and talent scout John Hammond. It got him a Columbia deal and that first album, titled Bob Dylan, where true to folk form, he sounds much older than his age, sounds like he could be singing from a campfire during the Civil War, if they had Columbia's technology. To make an invisible republic visible, you can't just sound old. You also have to sound young. You have to remind people that ancient as your tales are, you are still very much alive, more alive than anyone else. Hard to do when every song ends with a surprise visit from the Grim Reaper, Bob, 
realized he would have to write his own songs. Protest songs? No. Rebel songs. Rebel songs. Rebel songs, like the ones, the ballads, the old Irish drunks were singing all night at the White Horse Tavern on Hudson, where Bob liked to hang out and get inspired. Quote, the language was flashy and provocative, a lot of action in the words, all sung with great gusto. They weren't protest songs, though. They were rebel ballads. Even in a simple, melodic, wooing ballad, there'd be a rebellion waiting around the corner. You couldn't escape it. There were songs like that in my repertoire, too, where something lovely was suddenly upturned, but instead of rebellion showing up, it would be death itself, the Grim Reaper. Rebellion spoke to me louder. The rebel was alive and well, romantic and honorable. The Grim Reaper wasn't like that. End quote. A vision was forming, but it needed color, American color. And it needed language, and it needed principles. Luckily, newspapers from the American Civil War had all of these things in mind-blowing style. Bob would read them at the New York Public Library. His description of that experience, recorded in Chronicles Volume 1, is truly a must-read. For example, he realizes that, quote, in some ways, the Civil War would be a battle between two kinds of time, end quote. Almost like the difference between a two, three-minute song that feels long and a six-minute song that feels short, and a 17-minute song where the concept of time disappears altogether. Bob knew that to get on the radio, he would have to expand the nation's attention span single-handedly. And he finally did it. With Like a Rolling Stone. Which blasted the radio shot clock by two. That was a great deal more revolutionary than going electric. You want to write rebel songs that never run out of steam? You want to be a rebel that never runs out of a cause? Rebel against time! Civil War. Quote, The age that I was living in didn't resemble this age, but yet it did in some mysterious and traditional way. Not just a little bit, but a lot. Back there, America was put on the cross, died, and was resurrected. There was nothing synthetic about it. The god-awful truth of that would be the all-encompassing template behind everything that I would write. Mood ain't no false prophet. baby hollywood california what's all this drama let's rent a vespa go catch some sights
streets of Rome are filled with rubble, ancient footprints are everywhere. Why you can almost think that you're seeing double double on a hot dry night in Silver Lake stairs. Got to hurry on back to my Roosevelt Hotel room. Or I've got me a date with Fellini's niece. She promised that she'd bear it all for me. When I shoot my masterpiece. Oh, the hours I've spent inside the Coliseum, dodging linebackers and calling for time. Oh, those speedy kings of the pack, I could hardly see them. Yes, it sure has been a long 99-yard drive. Wheel routes running through the back of my memory. When I ran on the hilltop following a pack of wild Greeks. Someday, Everything is gonna be smooth like a blue and gold rhapsody. When I coach my masterpiece, sailing round Echo Park in a dirty gondola. Oh, to be back in the land of rock and roll. I left Babylon and landed in Palm Springs On a plane ride so masked up that I almost cried Doctor, clergyman in uniform and girl bosses pulling strings No one was there to greet me when I stepped outside Paper men eating candy had to be held down by big police. Someday, everything is gonna be just dandy. When I tweet my masterpiece. Here in the Pantages, Bob takes a vacation from rough and rowdy ways to sing a song he wrote half a century before. A fun song, a vacation song, but travel is banned, and who has the budget to shoot on location in Europe? So here on Hollywood Boulevard, you can't help but adapt the lyrics a bit for your own screen. But this song comes at a very logical moment in the story Bob is telling on stage. This is a vacation song, cultural vacation song, a national vacation song, maybe a civilizational vacation song. It is not about art or the creative process. It's about backpacking through Europe. It's about wanting to publish a novel, wanting to change the world, maybe get some funding, start a film festival in Dubai. It's about wanting things instead of doing them and finding fulfillment by wanting things that can't be done. Some people pursue art as a permanent vacation. 
the rich expat, the connoisseur with the perfect tan. It's about the purest perfectionist putting those finishing touches on that book of poems in middle age. Aimless travel, Euro-trash, tourism, running with the bulls in Pamplona, death in Venice, just like Hemingway. Ah, times aren't what they used to be, I tell ya. Sipping fine wine, eating pussy on a balcony. The pussy should be exotic, whether it's a girl from Greece, in the live recording of the song, or Botticelli's niece, in a studio outtake. This is a song about having a great idea for a screenplay. A song about wanting to see Bob Dylan play Masters of War and blowing in the wind in the same way on the same guitar forever. When I paint my masterpiece, the audience loves this jaunty serenade. For most audiences, it probably sounds like a musical postcard sent with care from a castle in the artistic life. They're rooting for that masterpiece to get painted. Can't wait to see it. They have confidence in this guitar poet. They have hope. They probably don't notice the tell in the title, which points to exactly when that beautiful masterpiece is scheduled to drop. A crowded spot on the space-time continuum known as Never. The song demonstrates as well as any why Bob Dylan wrote that quote. Folk songs are evasive. The truth about life and life is more or less a lie. But then again, that's exactly the way we want it to be. We wouldn't be comfortable with it any other way. A folk song has over a thousand faces, and you must meet them all if you want to play this stuff. A folk song might vary in meaning, and it might not appear the same from one moment to the next. It depends on who's playing and who's listening, end quote. And you gotta believe that some nights, when he sang this number, Bob Dylan was singing about himself. No star and no nation and no civilization is immune from such lulls. The difference between the fake artist and the real one is in the self-awareness. This is an anthem of decadent wishful thinking, of lays and haze and living in a museum, and it probably applies to many of the types who remained stuck in the village gaslight folk scene from which Bob Dylan soared. If it's creative process that you seek, that's coming later in the show. Stay tuned. Cancel that Mediterranean cruise and grease yourself for some rough and rowdy ways. Kind of a western, reshuffled from its place on the Rough and Rowdy album for dramatic purposes in the show. Black Rider, Black Rider, you've been living too hard, been up all night, have to stay on your guard. The path that you're walking, too narrow to walk. Every step of the way, another stumbling block. The road that you're on, same road that you know. 
just not the same as it was a minute ago. Not the same at all, is it? Not even close. Happens to the best of us. But Black Rider isn't necessarily the best of us. Or the best of Bob. Who is the Black Rider? Tons of speculation online about this one. Somebody says the Black Rider is the third horseman of the apocalypse. Famine. Somebody says it's Satan. Somebody says it's Bob Dylan's public persona. Somebody says it's death. One musicologist believes this very simple, slow, swaying song is the most complex one musically that Bob Dylan has ever written, due to the bait-and-switch chord changes. Apparently, Dylan alternates between the minor, major, and seventh chords unpredictably. Always something three? Trusty experts, I wouldn't knew. Although it does thrill me to find out that while it sounds like the song has no percussion, if you listen closely to the recorded version, there is a faint drumbeat at the end of each verse. The road that you're on, same road that you know, just not the same as it was a minute ago. In the live versions he's been playing lately, like just this month, that drum beat is allowed to flower and rejuvenate the entire song with a full-on rhythm. This song has a long way left to ride. To my mind, Black Rider is a sequel to The Man in the Long Black Coat, a song Bob wrote for his album Oh Mercy in 1989. The lyrics of that song, he says, try to tell you about someone whose body doesn't belong to him, someone who loved life but cannot live, and it rankles his soul that others should be able to live. A song he describes as, quote, the real facts. A song he thought of as his own I Walk the Line. That unforgettable tune where Johnny Cash keeps a close watch on this heart of mine. Black Rider, Black Rider, you've seen it all. You've seen the great world and you've seen the small. You fell into the fire and you're eating the flame. Better seal up your lips if you want to stay in the game. Be reasonable, mister, be honest, be fair. Let all of your earthly thoughts be a prayer. You fell into the fire and you're eating the flame. Better seal up your lips if you want to stay in the game. Interesting. And a long way now that the man in the 
long black coat, which sounds like it could be the opening credit song to a season of True Detective. Crickets are chirping, the water is high. There's a soft cotton dress on the line, hanging dry. The windows wide open, African trees bent over backwards from a hurricane breeze. Not a word, a goodbye, not even a note. She gone with a man in the long black coat. Haunting it may be, but that song is HBO. The real facts may be wafting through the window and floating around somewhere in the New Orleans mansion where The Man in the Long Black Coat was recorded, but they are not being hammered into your soul like nails the way they are in I Walk the Line, hammered by the bands Click Click, Tick Tock, Click Clack Talk, and Sealed by Johnny Cash's. So it seems like Bob is taking another swing at it, now that the Black Rider is old, and a lot of flames have been eaten, cigs smoked beyond the butt, many a lip sealed up for good. The singer is mourning him and warning him. You can spend a lot of time on that last verse before it drives you crazy, and you tell the Black Rider to please shut up, lock down, stop making provocations, shelter in place. Black Rider, Black Rider, all dressed in black. I'm walking away, you try to make me look back. The heart is at rest, I'd like to keep it that way. I don't want to fight, at least not today. Go home to your wife, stop visiting mine. One of these days I'll forget to be kind. But the Black Rider still has a few tricks up his sleeve. Black Rider, Black Rider, tell me when, tell me how. If there ever was a time, let and let it be now. Let me go through, open the door. My soul is distressed, my mind is at war. Don't hug me, don't flatter me, don't turn on the charm. I'll take a sword and hack off your arm. In On War, Karl von Clausewitz writes, quote, War is nothing but a duel on a larger scale. Countless duels go to make up war, but a picture of it as a whole can be formed by imagining a pair of wrestlers. and investigators, professors and dissectors, decoders and safecrackers, analyzers, criticizers, puzzle freaks, and word nerds of all kinds. This has always made certain more practical-minded listeners of the boomer persuasion suspicious. I don't need a seminar to help me enjoy a song, they say. It's true, you don't need to nerd your way into loving a song. 
Dylanologists can be very annoying. Similar to David Lynchologists, they take their obsession too seriously. Like Casabon and Middlemarch, they waste their lives looking for keys. To the folky, he's Judas. To the Christian, he's Messiah. To the Jew, he never meant it. Most of this is fair game, so long as you don't insist that your Bob Dylan is the only Bob Dylan, or that homework equals magic. Besides, Dylan has described his creative process many times, both in plain language and in the kind of evasiveness that makes you certain he's being sincere. In his wonderful new book, The Philosophy of Modern Song, Dylan reminds us of that old joke about what happens when you dissect a frog. Quote, Like any other piece of art, songs are not seeking to be understood. Art can be appreciated or interpreted, but there is seldom anything to understand. Whether it's dogs playing poker or Mona Lisa's smile, you gain nothing from understanding it. End quote. That comment comes in an essay on Nina Simone's version of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, the kind of song even a child can enjoy. Black writer, black writer, hold it right there. The size of your cock will get you nowhere. Ain't that the truth with 10 inches? Does anyone need a ruler to appreciate that line? Folk songs are supposed to belong equally to the listener as they do to the singer. And obviously too many middlemen can get in the way. Perhaps I should stop talking right now. But I don't think I will. Because for all the talk of Bob Dylan in certain quarters, nobody under a certain age is going to have any idea who he is or what his music is unless it's rammed down their fucking throats. Besides, I ain't a middleman. I'm just walking and talking to myself here on Hollywood Boulevard, making my own version of Bob. If a song enchants you on its own, it's fun to elaborate that enchantment by nerding out on the lyrics and the notes and the influences, especially if it's a vague, minor key sort of enchantment like this one. But you can't be a dull fucker about it. Your aim should be to expand the experience of the music as opposed to narrow it. I hear some things that none of the critics or pitchfork people seem to hear in Black Rider. I hear the possibility that the singer, addressing the Black Rider, is five different people, a different opponent in each verse. If the Black Rider has a voice, I hear a younger version of it in the next song of this very concert, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, from Bob Dylan's 1967 album John Wesley Harding and first released, notably, as the B-side on the single of All Along the Watchtower. Baby, tonight. 
Some critics hear a conversation with that Tom Waits song of the same name plus the, where Waits, as Marlena Dietrich or someone, is the Black Riders' carnival hype man. Hear what you want. The more hearings, the merrier. My ear catches a different conversation, which I also haven't seen anyone else mention so far. It's a convo between Bob Dylan and our good old friend, Leonard Cohen. Trading albums as they did in old age, unimpeded by Leonard's death a day or two after the 2016 election, and even unimpeded by the tragic performance of Hallelujah by Catherine McKinnon as Hillary Clinton on that weekend's SNL. Leonard Cohen put out some very interesting songs in the final years of his life as he discovered the joy of touring again after a long hiatus, to the point where he didn't even stop when he died. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. I better hold my tongue. I better take my place. Drink this glass of wine and try to say the grace. Sounded like the truth seemed the better way. Sounded like the truth, but it's not the truth today. You want a darker, an ashy, severe, a dew, incense, incensed, bitter as hell, bitter farewell, and it's also brutally matter-of-fact. He doesn't care if you agree. A Jew who listened carefully, calling Christ a fool. A rebel album from the Black Horse Tavern. Job's closing argument. I wish there was a treaty we could sign between your love and mine, are the album's last words. The whole thing sounds like a ferocious quarrel at the pearly gates. Kind of quarrel that can only end in sudden silence. But unless you thought the world actually ended in 2016, with Hillary Clinton McKinnon singing Hallelujah for Liptards, you wondered if Leonard really would drop the mic like that. No trademark smile, not even a wink of consolation. Sure enough, it was not his last Leonard word. Three years later, he came back from the dead with a final, final album to set the record straight. To balance the scales with gratitude, abandon the rancor and share what he learned about grappling with that final dropping curtain. 2019's Thanks for the Dance. The first song is Happens to the Heart, an account of the career of a black writer. Or at least someone in partnership with the black writer. It is a lucid last Leonard testament, as honest and non-defensive as Bob's voice in Black Rider is tender and non-confrontational. I was always working steady, but I never called it art. I got my shit together, meeting Christ and reading Marx. It failed my little fire, but it spread the dying spark. Go tell the young Messiah what happens to the heart. There's a mist of summer kisses where I tried to double park. The rivalry was vicious, the 
women were in charge. It was nothing, it was business, but it left an ugly mark. I've come here to revisit what happens to Lars. Had a pussy in the kitchen and a panther in the yard. In the prison of the gifted, I was friendly with the guards, so I never had to witness what happens to the heart. Later on in the album, Leonard appears even more directly as the gypsy black writer in a ballad from the beyond called The Night of Santiago. Musically, it sounds like it's coming from the same neighborhood as Black Rider, maybe even on the dueling stage in the same saloon. But if Bob's number is a dirge, Leonard's is a celebration. A story of a fleeting fling, a seduction rung for all the songs it's worth. No apologies, no strings attached. The night of Santiago And I was passing through I took her to the river As any man would do The night of Santiago And I was passing through I took her to the river As any man would do It's never up to you But she was walking back and forth And I was passing through When I took her to the river In her virginal apparel When I took her to the river On that night of Santiago And yes, she lied about it all Her children and her husband You were born to judge the world, forgive me, but I wasn't. Who knows how many common Marianne's Leonard and Bob rode through on their parallel paths to and from the Black Horse Tavern? The possibilities are endless. Bob's been everywhere, man. A few places they ain't even invented yet. No intersection left uncrossed. What really matters is that when... Black Rider hit the market on Juneteenth of 2020. A great many people, especially the ones trotting around a certain boulevard 10 miles east of the Pacific Ocean, could suddenly identify with the Black Rider. We woke up one morning and the streets were empty, struggled to our feet and tried to move. Same path as before, but somehow narrower. Each step a new stumbling block, the road that we're on. Same road as we know. Which is not the same as it was a minute ago. What happened last night? How did we end up here? Ain't talking, just walking. Consoled merely by the faint memory that this has happened before. So much for dissecting a frog. Fuck all the research, fuck all the footnotes. No time to speak falsely now. The hour's getting late. Unless we can seize the hands of time. Tie them up. Yank them back. Not too far back. 
I don't have to go all the way back to the Civil War. I just have to go back to, say, 2006, 2007. Modern times. Let's just go back to modern times. I listened to that CD countless times my senior year at UCLA. Musically, it was right up my alley, just like the previous two albums, which are known as Bob Dylan's late-stage Resurrection Trilogy. Charting his quest back to musical and poetic mastery, the quest began with a broken Bob Dylan walking through a ghostly, raspy, insomniac jukebox with a mind of its own in 1997's Time Out of Mind, and coming out the other side with a defiant, proudly insane, old man swagger in Love and Theft, which settled any rude questions about its own authority by being released exactly on... 9-11-2001. Modern Times, 2006, built off it all, brought it all back home, cemented the new voice and transformation, anointed a new old man who might just walk around forever, who might just be the only one you see crossing any street the rest of America has left for dead. The songs didn't sound like old songs, his or anyone else's. They sounded like the entire history of American music chopped up, thrown into some celestial melodic blender, and poured anew. In a sense, they did for 60s rock and roll what Dylan had done in the 60s for traditional folk music. They reinvented time for their author to perform by, and they declared total independence from the state of the culture even as Modern Times hit number one on the charts. But even though it hit number one, Modern Times was not perceived as a prophecy. It was a triumph, it was a completed comeback, but it had no relevance in terms of the linear timeline and world events. It's not like Love and Theft coming out exactly on 9-11, or the first original album, Freewheeling Bob Dylan, coming out in May 1963, just a few months before JFK ended and the 60s began, or even, you know, Slow Train, the first Christian album coming out in 1979. And it's definitely not like the pinpoint prophetic precision of rough and rowdy ways meeting the big plague. In fact, a lot of people thought the title Modern Times was an ironic joke, given just how deep in the past some of the sounds traveled, and just how far into paradise the lyrics followed them. After all, the title comes from Charlie Chaplin, the whole charm of the show was how stubbornly removed it was from anything present. It's amazing how much can hide in plain sight or plain sound. Things have changed. And now for anyone in the know, for anyone dialed into the real facts and the real state of America, the verdict on modern times can only be, ain't no false prophet. <laughs> Prophecy arrives in its final song, that noir epic, endlessly connected, biblically open-ended closer. As I walked out tonight in the mystic garden, the wounded flowers were dangling from the vine. I was passing by a young cool crystal fountain 
Someone hits me from behind Ain't talking Just walking Through this weary world of the world Hot burning Still yearning No one on earth would ever know There's a prophecy. It's all right there in those opening lines. Did you catch it? If you've been listening to Filthy Armenian Adventures, you should be able to catch it on your own. But okay, I'll call it out. But first, ain't talking, just walking. In his latest book, Folk Music, a Bob Dylan Biography in Seven Songs, Griel Marcus devotes a beautiful chapter to this very song, tracing a number of its infinite echoes, from Ovid to old Dan Tucker, including those of its extremely familiar title and refrain. Quote, Walk, talk. It's not a phrase. It's a gesture, a posture, a way of carrying yourself that speaks of foreboding and escape. End quote. Foreboding of what? I was all up in that refrain and that foreboding back in 2007. Ain't talking, just walking. Graduation was coming up. Back then, if you were a college senior, I don't know about now, people would ask, are you walking? Are you planning to walk the stage during the ceremony? Are you going to graduate late or early or never and wait for the mail? Ain't talking, just walking, I'd say. To the screwball, dialoguing blonde girl I attempted to have a crush on, she laughed. When I pointed out the connection between the song and the predicament, she genuinely laughed. I love those old movies. While I was walking, classmate James Franco was supposed to be talking. Fellow graduating bachelor in English had been picked to be our commencement speaker until for some reason some people on campus made an uproar and he backed out and was replaced by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sounds almost like a song of some kind. So James Franco didn't walk and didn't talk, and he sure ain't talking now, wherever he is. As for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he was recently seen at a screening of Invisible Republic. Foreboding of what? Escape from what? As I approached my exit from the mystic garden of school, let's consult our old friend, Griel. The song opens on piano, guitar, violin, elegant, shimmering like those velvet drapes opening credits to any given film noir, suspending the song in the air. Then, as I walked out, an opening from a thousand songs into a thousand more. You open a door, the world is at your feet. As I went out one morning the air around Tom Payne I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains I offered her my hand she took me by the arm I knew that very to do me harm There's an echo from Dylan's own As I Went Out One Morning from John Wesley Harding almost 40 years before as paradoxical a song as he ever wrote a three-way waltz between the singer 
Tom Paine, and the first damsel that ever did walk in chains. She beckoning the singer to escape with her to the South, where men and women lived in chains, but also the musical source of freedom in America. Then Tom Paine apologizing for what she's done, a faraway, half-remembered cloudiness in the melody that seems to float just above the people talking in the song. Yet, what's odd about the instrumental opening of Ain't Talkin', something you don't think about, you don't even hear, but that travels through the song, an unconscious perception that puts a haze over everything described, is that the musicians are playing an ending, not a beginning. That's the elegance, the elegance of closing a door. The singer walks out, not one morning, but one night, into what he calls the mystic garden. I was passing by your cool crystal fountain, he says flatly, a memory already forming. Someone hits him from behind. From that point on, it's a wondering. Thank you, Greel. Someone hit me from behind. Someone hit us from behind. If you're a millennial, just like Ovid was, you got clobbered from behind. Just as you passed by that school crystal fountain. Who hit you from behind? Don't ask. It doesn't matter. What difference does it make? Not like we know how to convict anyone, unless he's not guilty. What was the weapon? Take your pick. Maybe it's the one you got in your hand right now. The one my voice is coming out of. Launched in 2007. Maybe it's all that social media that pulled the rug of reality from right beneath our feet which were trained to walk by cool crystal fountains and look upon technology as a friend. Maybe also, if we're getting super personal, what hit us from behind was the appearance of that beautiful man in the black polo shirt at the old-timey Apple Pan Diner just weeks before graduation, the one who introduced me to the very thought of, oh, shit, all the young dudes carry the news, indeed. Apple Pan, established 1947. When you are seeking greatness, turn to the Apple Pan, a homey 1940s institution imitated everywhere from Duluth, Minnesota, to Bahrain. Double whammy, as they say. Maybe it's all those things that are the weapon in concert with what they call the Great Recession, which turned us all into perpetual interns. The Great Recession. Now, there's a truer phrase than any economist can even begin to know. Economies recovered, the world kept spinning in ever-retarded ways, but there was a Great Recession that didn't stop. Culture, round about that time, began to recede, artificially igniting long-settled wars, rearming dormant thought police, retrying settled cases, reenacting old coups, disowning hard-earned rights in order to campaign for wrongs, shredding peace agreements for power plays, wiping smiles off of faces, extinguishing spirits, defunding men, redistributing subterranean homesick blues. 
producing endless distracting bubbles, creating very little that is good or new. It's just that after the plague of 2020 swung that blow to the entire world all at once, it was no longer possible to deny it. Life became for all of us concussed. A brain fog wandering like the one the singer of Ain't Talkin' is on through the last eight beautiful verses of the song. Seeking all truth and beauty in the past. Burning bridges before anyone else can cross. Slaughtering opponents in their sleep. Swearing to avenge the death of our fathers. Counting the last loyal and much-loved companions who approve of us and share our code. Practicing fates that are long abandoned. Ain't no altars on this long and lonesome road. Carrying a dead man's shield. Walking with a toothache in our heel. One foot in front of the other over the fallen stars on this boulevard of broken dreams, wondering as we wonder why even the ghosts have moved to Florida. And that's if we're lucky. That's if we still have a brain. If we still have a pulse. Black Rider, Black Rider, America is back on the cross again, and everybody knows it. And the only question is... Will there be a third act this time? And that, my friends, is where Bob Dylan rides in from the Mystic Garden to the rescue. That's the old introduction. He's no longer introduced by the funny carnival announcement taken from his description in a Minnesota newspaper some years ago. Now on this tour, he's taking the stage to some classical strings and getting right to business. He's not wandering anymore. He's marching. He's on a mission. It's going to be a long and narrow way. It's going to be a rough and rowdy way. But he's got a bottomless bag of magical songs to inject us with and a roadmap to perform. He's got all the connections we're going to need. This is the fifth time I've seen him live, and the second time on Hollywood Boulevard, each performance grander than the last. He hasn't sounded this commanding in decades, this definite, or this powerful, since maybe the last time America was on the cross. We're not even at halftime at the Pantages Theater. So make sure to come back and find out 
if and how my beloved Bob Dylan can make this fucking country great again. Filthy Armenian Adventures was recorded in and out of the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. Written and voiced by your host, Alec Mohibian. Supported entirely by patrons on Patreon. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash filthyarmenian to get access to twice as many adventures and join the enlightened society of rug merchants, cigar singers, and oligarchs of the night who keep the lights on at Filthy Armenian Adventure Land. Spread the word to your friends and enemies. Leave a rating and review wherever you listen. Follow us on social media at Filthy Armenian. Fare thee well, Tadesuchun, and thank you for writing and